I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we start with the weekend review, what TV shows and movies we have been watching separately and together. Since the last episode, move on to the main event, which is typically a main topic of the conversation or a main review, then finish up with film phase, our 12 respective favorites of a particular topic often marching backward through time. In this episode, we're going to have a short week in review before moving on into the main event, which will be our review of Quentin Tarantino's latest Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Then, film faves will... Get back on track with our... Superheroes. I'm kidding. It's comic book movies. That is correct. As part of our year-long series, in coordination with the year-long series Best of 2010s on the blog, we are looking at our favorites of the decade. And in this episode, we'll be focusing on comic book movies of the decade. So... There is quite a bit of fun. This is kind of our wheelhouse. We're looking forward to getting into that. But first, Shanna, you saw something in your week in review that you wanted to talk about this past week. What yes, was it? Yes, I did. It was a little show from HBO known as Big Little Lies Season 2. So if you're out there and you haven't watched Big Little Lies Season 1 yet, I highly recommend it. It has got wonderful actresses, lead actresses. They are all fierce as fuck. And it's just really an exhilarating show to watch. And it has a fantastic ending. Not going to spoil it. But really briefly, who are those fantastic So the fantastic cast includes Zoe Kravitz, Nicole Kidman, uh, Laura Dern, Cheyenne Woodley, Or is it Cheyenne? I think it's Shailene. Shailene, sorry. Shailene Woodley, Reese Witherspoon, Did I Miss Someone? Of course, there's a couple male actors. Alex Skarsgård is in it. I love to see Alex Skarsgård. Also, and... Oh, I forget. Is it Jeffrey Nordling who plays one of the husbands also? It might be. I think so. I don't have the cast list up here, but it's... That's a big bulk of them, anyway. Yeah. Now in season two... You get to see what the relationships are like now after season one. Mm. And you dive a little deeper into things. This is called Big Little Lies. So obviously there's lies throughout the, you know, this is what the show is about. Big ones and little ones. Little lies that (laughs) are big things, you know. Mm. And it's, it's, you know, you're either going to see something be revealed or you're going to see something being hidden. And... What's fun about season two is that we get to see everyone again. That's what's the fun sure. part for me. The not so good part is that certain characters kind of got pushed aside mm. and their stories really needed more time to, you know, pan out what the end goal was. They were underdeveloped. The, yeah, they were underdeveloped. And I even spoke to my mom about it about the this particular season and i said oh yeah because character so and so you know they did such and such and she said what and i was like yeah because that's depicted through the flashback flashback thing and she was like oh i didn't get that from 
that. So mm. I was like, okay. And that was like just reinforced that idea of like that particular character needed more screen time, needed, you know, more development. Mm. But are, you, are you able to say which character? Am I? Well, Zoe Kravitz and Shailene Woodley, Woodley definitely needed more. I think. Okay. I mean, the parts where they were on screen were fantastic, but they needed more because uh-huh. I, I just I just felt strongly that they needed that. So you're saying there was more focus given to the other female characters in the in the the cast of five. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, and you all got Meryl Streep added. In and then Meryl season. Streep got folded into everything. She is. Nicole Kidman's mother-in-law, oh. and it's it's very like if you ever if you were ever uncertain of what passive aggressive looks like, mm. <laughs> I think Meryl Streep beautifully encompasses all of that, and mm. you kind of you know whenever she's playing whatever character, it just seems to consume her, and she becomes this new person you know sure. she's not even Meryl Streep anymore you see it in the back of your mind but in the forefront you're like this is so and so character sure, so sure. it's quite interesting the children you get to see the children again I don't have that cast list in front of me but they were in season one and you get to see them again are and they important to the season well yeah I mean these are all mothers yeah, but I mean, do they play an integral role to the plot? Of I believe two? so, okay. yeah. Did you like season two as much as season one? No, I think season one was way better. Mm. I'm grateful that there's a season two. I just felt like they needed, certain characters needed more development. Gotcha. Was there anything else you wanted to share about that uh, that season? I highly recommend it. You do? Yeah. No, it's I not think as the, good. I think the good outweighs the bad. Okay. Yeah. Right on. So that's Big Little Lies, which is on HBO and its streaming platforms. I just have one movie to talk about really briefly that I got to revisit while showing a friend. And that is Moon, which is experiencing its 10th anniversary right now. It's from 2009. It pretty much only stars Sam Rockwell and... Kevin Spacey's voice. That's Sam Rockwell? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Have you seen Moon? Yeah, but I was tired that day, and that's not a movie you should watch if you're tired. Probably not. It's been long enough, several years since I've last seen it. So it's it's like a 96-minute movie or something like that. It's not very long. But I had forgotten a large amount of this movie. And first and foremost, like, more people should know about this movie. I think it's one of the lesser-known Sam Rockwell films. It's directed by Duncan Jones. It was his first film. He went on to make Source Code with Jake Gyllenhaal and the Warcraft movie. and Like and World maybe, of Warcraft? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that yeah. came out, like, in 2017 or something like that. Got horrible reviews. He might have made one other movie, but this was definitely like his like it was a, it's a great film shot on a, a very limited budget, but still able to do so much with visually with visual effects. But this is a one man show about uh, Sam Rockwell playing a guy who's on the moon. He's a contractor on the moon. He's coming close to the end of his three year contract where he gets to go back home and something's not right out on the, the work site, let's say. Um, on the moon and so he 
He goes out to figure out what's going on out there, and he makes a startling discovery that just rocks his world. And it's it's a it's a one of those that leaves you some stuff to chew on. It's ex- exceptionally well performed by Sam Rockwell. I wish I could give more details, but I can't. Even though it's ten years old, I just don't think enough people have seen this film. So in order for me to talk freely about it, but mm-hmm. needless to say, it definitely is still worth seeking out if you can. And I think it's an underrated film, honestly. And while Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri was a fantastic performance of Sam Rockwell's most of his career, you could say that this is also a standout that people should hunt down. So that is Moon by Duncan Jones from 2009, a film that, even with its limited budget, holds up very well. So that does it for... The Week in Review, now it's time to move on to the main event, which is our review of Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's right. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting... I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Crown you Nazi bastards! (laughs) All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. Hot August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who do I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Charlie's gonna dig you. I can all change like that. Hey! You're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. And that's from the trailer to Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. IMDB describes the plot as thus. A faded television actor and his stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969 Los Angeles. The film stars Quentin Tarantino, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Dakota Fanning, Maya Hawke, Luke Perry, Timothy Oliphant, Holly Quinn Smith, Al Pacino, Kurt Russell, and Zoe Bell. Now, when we talk about a movie, when we review a movie, we typically like to start with the good, what we liked about a movie, what worked for us before moving on to the bad, what didn't work for us. And then we have our spoiler discussion and final thoughts. 
So, Shanna, it is no secret that you and I are generally, widely, fans of Quentin Tarantino's work. Yes. In fact, when we first met and I told you that I was craving watching Inglorious Bastards again, mm. you were like, oh my God, this chick likes Inglorious Bastards. So, yes. yes, I am a big fan. My first movie of his that I got to watch was Kill Bill. And I was like, who the fuck is this awesome chick that's kicking ass, you know? I so, yeah. taking revenge in an assassination medium so kill bill was your first quentin tarantino film mm -hmm. what would you say first is your top three quentin tarantino oh movies yeah we discussed this so, before having seen once upon a time in hollywood oh yeah i i don't think it changes by the way because i i okay. have a lot of attachment to the three that i have what are those uh so my number three is django unchained okay my number two is the kill bill Movie, yeah, movies yeah. and then it's inglorious bastards okay and what would be your bottom three? Oh, so at the bottom is jackie brown okay so jackie brown's at the bottom for me just because i've never been able to get into it and i'll keep trying mm. you know because i'm a dedicated tarantino fan so i'll okay. keep watching it so we've got jackie brown at the bottom pulp fiction and then death proof okay not that i dislike them uh -huh. it's it's just that's where they are okay well before we continue uh may i share my yeah my favorite? i'd love okay. to know so my top three before seeing this movie are definitely without a doubt inglorious bastards pulp fiction kill bill nice. and to clarify we count kill bill as one film not two because it was intended to be one. It was conceived as one and uh, it had to be split in half for practical reasons, practicality reasons. Anyway, so those are my top three. My bottom three are Jackie Brown, Hateful Eight, and Death Proof. Okay. Those are the ones I enjoy the least. But out of the eight movies or something like that before this, uh, I generally enjoy his films uh yeah. just to just to varying degrees and those three are the ones i i didn't really enjoy that much so shanna once upon a time in hollywood this one was one we really didn't know much about we just knew we stayed away from a lot well we, i did we did see trailer and we did have an idea of what the synopsis was and mm -hmm. we knew that it was going to be set in Real world, 1969, with actual actors being portrayed. We have Bruce Lee being portrayed, Sharon Tate, director Roman Polanski, and a handful of others, right? So we didn't know exactly. In fact, I had posited... Steve McQueen? Steve McQueen. That's, that's one, yes. I had posited, I think, in our, like, one of our preview episodes that maybe this was a film that was about, like struggle of the come on coming of new hollywood and we knew charlie manson was going to play a factor somehow in it as well and and stuff like that first of all did this movie in any way meet your expectations or surprise you and what did you like about the movie what was good about it for you in general terms that's so difficult to do with a Quentin Tarantino film, don't you think? 
what talk broadly instead talk of broadly specifics. instead of specifics it can be and yeah. for those who are new to the podcast for us anything that is in the trailer or the first 20 minutes of the movie of a movie we feel generally speaking is open to the discussion generally spoilers tend to happen sometime after the 20 minute mark of a, of a film so we'll try not uh going into too, too much detail and there's definitely some spoilers especially in the third act so there was so much nostalgia in this film like nostalgia that i couldn't relate to but i could see was there uh-huh. such as you know a tang product mac and cheese craft mac and cheese how it used to look all these different products are like lined up on this shelf mm. and then there's all this beautiful color and there's this street just filled with movie houses and it was really beautiful and very pleasing to see all these different setups but i forgot that charles manson that whole crew was going to show up too so i was totally engrossed and loving the film and like oh this is so much fun to see actors you know behind the scenes Mm -hmm. you know you only see that in a couple movies and i really liked tarantino's take on it Mm. and then there was the switch to the introduction of how they were going to show you the manson family and i was like oh shit, I forgot. (laughs) So I was having a really good relaxed time Mm -hmm. up until that point. And then I was like, oh shit. And so it was this realization of, oh no, we're going to be tense. I'm going to be tense for the whole film, which I was because, because Sharon Tate had a dog. We see her get off a plane and she has her dog. And I'm like, Oh God, please don't kill the dog. And then we see Brad Pitt's character has a dog and I'm like, Oh my God, there's two dogs. What are you trying to do to me? (laughs) So I was pretty tense for most of the film. For the sake of the dogs, not the, not the characters in the movie. Cause you know, you know the history, right? So it's like, well, what's going to happen is going to happen. Right. And so when I saw the two dogs, I was like, Quentin Tarantino, what are you trying to do to me? So the dogs do not die. And that's not a spoiler. Because nope. you're a monster. In fact, if, I didn't even re- yeah. remember one of those dogs existed. Yeah. So anyway, I I loved seeing Sharon Tate and how I always got the impression that she was this very loving, nice, kind person. Oh, really? I always got that impression from mm. the documentaries I watched, etc. And so it was really nice to see her as this giddy, feeling accomplished mm-hmm. kind of person. Mm-hmm. So that was lovely. I loved seeing all the actors really i loved seeing brad pitt doing his thing i liked the character he was playing i liked seeing leonardo dicaprio seeing leonardo leonardo seeing him (laughs) stressed out is my favorite i don't know why it's just very pleasing to me yeah um to see him stressed out on screen you know i just i really liked this film i thought it was i thought it was really fun I want to go watch it again yeah. to see if I'm not, you know, because now I know how it ends. So I want to see if I'm yeah. going to still feel tense. Well, to that point, I actually do think that the first experience with this film is very different than any subsequent experience with this film uh, that you'll have with this film. There's a very good reason why that we can talk about in spoilers mm-hmm that kind of releases some of the tension 
But I'm going to say right up front that the, there's definitely more good than bad in this film. Mm-hmm. I think that's very easy and safe to say. Uh, and I'm still chewing on this film. I think it does offer a lot to actually think about and chew on and, and process how you feel about it. This is a film where the the main plot of it follows really DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's characters. Brad Pitt plays uh, the stuntman, Cliff, to DiCaprio's main character, Rick. And Rick is apparently a former TV star from this one Western back in the early 60s, late 50s, um, back when all those Western shows were really popular. He was on it for three seasons before he left the show to try to pursue a career in film and has since just done a bunch of guest spots on TV shows as the week's villain. And he has his main story is about how his career has changed and kind of how, you know, dealing with his career as it is. And uh, a large part of it is him preparing and performing this one stint he has on a, on a, a TV episode as another bad and his kind of crisis of his career, what, where it's going to be. Is it where he wants it to be? Can he get it to where he wants it to be? Is he, is he done for right? And, and Cliff he's he's uh, basically best buds with Rick. Mm-hmm. You know, you see Brad Pitt and DiCaprio palling around, which is a joy to watch, actually. Yeah, I think they work really well on screen together. They do. And they represent in some ways that if you want, we can dive into in spoilers that I think that every kind of every guy wishes that they could find in a friendship, yeah. you know, like they they have this tight. They're like really tight. They like spend practically every day together. And sometimes they end every day together Mm -hmm. um, by uh, just shooting the shit and watching TV or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed their chemistry and their relationships, the struggles that DiCaprio's character goes through, his performance here. I really feel like, actually, ultimately, this film is DiCaprio's film. I really think, like, uh, he has the most interesting stuff to do for the most part in this film, although... Uh, uh, Brad Pitt has definitely at least one sequence in the middle that's pretty tense. Mm. And Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate has one scene that's a highlight that's been talked about a lot where she goes in and watches her movie and witnesses the crowd's reaction to her. And and we can talk more about that if you'd like a little bit later. But I was surprised how, how much Sharon Tate... And the Manson family are such a B-plot of this, but it's a B-plot. And one of the only times I could think of a B-plot that is just hanging over the air of the entire story where you're just dreading that B-plot coming to pass by the end. That said, I might have one comment to make in the next segment of our review about the B-plot versus the A-plot. But overall, like... There's a lot to enjoy here. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that Tarantino is chewing on. There's quest a lot, you know, it forces you a lot to ask questions of, okay, well, why? What is he getting at by making this 
choice as a writer and a filmmaker and and this choice as a writer and a filmmaker stuff that we can dive into a little bit more in spoilers like you said we can't really talk too much without getting into spoilers about the film even though it's a two hour 39 minute film minus credits did you have anything that you wanted to add or respond to before we got into what didn't work for you if anything i think you're so good at explaining the story without spoiling anything well i feel like best information I can give is like how I feel about the movie. Mm -hmm. So I hope that listeners appreciate that in some way. I think let's go ahead and jump into spoilers because I'm afraid I'm going to spoil something. Sure. Okay. Well, first, before we do, did you have anything that struck you that didn't work for you as much in the film at all? No, I don't think so. I think it was just, that's why I want to go see it again. Mm-hmm. I want to see what my second interpretation is like. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like right now I feel like, oh my God, I was just so tense. Whereas with something like Kill Bill, I'm like, woo, this is a cool ride. And Inglorious sure. Bastards, I'm like, whoa, this is a great idea. So That actually does actually remind me. It speaks to this film isn't necessarily a conventionally tarant- great ride for a Tarantino film, right? In the sense that this is a film that isn't about anything exciting or fun or jaw-dropping that happens. Mm-hmm. It is is just literally kind of a, a slice of life in a, of a period of time for these characters. So it does take its time. I think a lot of the movie takes place in one day, if I'm not mistaken. And so it's very much like lingering and you know um really taking its time with mm-hmm. depicting that day jumping between these different characters and it's got realistic moments that are human you have brad mm-hmm. pitt thinking about how he would have handled a situation yep and then he's like nah. you know so right. it's something that every human can relate to right yeah, and... I think it's his most human film. You know, actually, you're not alone. A lot of people are making that claim, and so there must be something to that. Mm-hmm. I think it's also his least violent film, because <laughs> there's really only two scenes of violence, which we can get into in spoilers. It's not but violent only... dependent, whereas yeah. my top three are. <laughs> well, most Tarantino films, I mean, they're known for their violence. His yeah. work is known for its violence and its brutality. And there isn't really that so much in this film now when the violence does come it, it is brutal it's and his style it too. is it's always it's always like a brutal mm-hmm. humorous vi- sometimes, kind of violence sometimes yeah. yeah yeah and so there is that but uh this is not as i mean there's like a scene where two people are in a car and i was like afraid any day, any moment, there's going to be a car wreck, and we're going to. I'm going to have flashbacks to Death Proof or something. Well, and that's and that doesn't thing. happen, right? That's the thing. You're tense throughout the film, so anything that a character does, whether it's as simple as a car ride, yeah, how you shouldn't be seated in the first place, or fixing something on the house, you yeah. think something's going to freaking happen. Well, it could, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I will just say. If anything, I could say negative about this film. It's that I don't think the B-plot, Sharon Tate's story, is as interesting as the A-plot, which is DiCaprio's uh, storyline. I found myself, as Tate was wandering through town, whenever it cut away from DiCaprio's story, I was more interested and invested in DiCaprio's story than Tate's. So, you know, there is that, but... We should talk more in spoilers, I think. 
Yeah, let's go for it. So first of all, you think the, the good outweighs the bad? Yeah. For those who haven't seen the film, right? So how would you rate the film out of 10? I think it's a seven and a half for me. Okay. All right. Seven and, and maybe eight? it's gonna push to like an eight and a half once I watch it a second time. I don't know. Okay. We'll see. <laughs> All right. This is definitely. A, I'm just gonna say eight. I'm gonna commit to an eight right now. Oh, okay. Out of ten. That's pretty right good. Right now, it's not. I don't know. It's definitely not one of his best. It's a fine piece of work. Yeah. Some people are calling it his masterpiece. I need now, to speak to these people. I need to hear why they think that. All over the internet, you can read lots of reviews that speak to that. And it, it, I am very interested in reading that as well. I'm not sure if I can really jump on that yet. Because we both think that Inglorious Bastards is his masterpiece. Well, and I, I'm trying to think why I think that. Everything that Quentin has in his film is pretty pristine. You know, like, if he's going to go for a certain cinemographic look, it's pristine. If he's going with certain actors, their performances are pristine. Mm. You know, but I think I'm so attracted to his beautiful, ravaging revenge films. So that's why I think I like it. Yeah, I think that... That have a sprinkling of reality to it. I think we're going to have a whole other discussion yeah. alone about why we feel the way we do about Inglorious Bastards. But let's do let's that get, next. <laughs> let's get into spoilers for Once Upon a Time. So if you haven't seen this film yet, we both recommend it. Skip ahead to film faves on the timestamp in the show notes. Because here we go. Spoilers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. All right. So spoilers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think first, let me kind of ease my way into the <laughs> the most obvious spoiler, right? Okay. So I had mentioned how... Going into this film, you have certain expectations of what's going to happen, knowing who that certain real-life people appear in it. Knowing that the Manson family appear in it. Knowing the time of the film. And, and people, the film, know, people know right, history. what that is, right? Right, yes. What that uh, means. Yes, yes. Okay. And if you don't, it's like really easy to Google and come across so many documentaries about the subject matter. So the movie keeps cutting to Sharon Tate and what she's doing in her day. And even someone like me, who's not really clear on dates and times of how events happen, know that there's this, there's a, have this feeling, a sense of dread that eventually we're probably going to end up having to see Margot Robbie playing this. I don't want to see that. Very sunny, very like wide eyed ideal uh not not necessarily idealistic but maybe somewhat naive and just like everything is ahead of her in life and excited this person who got to experience the joy of having other people react to her performance and have the self-affirmation that maybe she is actually good at, at what she does as an actress eventually be brutally murdered randomly by the Manson family while pregnant while yes like six months pregnant or something quite pregnant so we know that that is going to happen and 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 it's just a question of whether or not Tarantino is going to have that scene depicted or cut away and we see the aftermath of it right yeah and then the time comes in the film probably around the two-hour mark or so when members of the Manson family do descend upon that neighborhood or ascend, as the case may be, 
and they are about to somehow make their way to that house. I don't know how they were going to with this rundown, noisy-ass car that they apparently used, uh, how they got through the fence that's there, the gate. But apparently they did, right? So they're about to do this when Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who... Who's already having a hard time because he essentially has to let go of his best friend due to finances. Yeah, he's coming to terms with where his career is. He's done Italian films and nothing's really panned out to a huge like resurgence in his career. He's got a wife and he's got more expenses than income so he has to make some concessions he's trying to make a margarita he hears this car out front and he chews these people out they then redirect their attention from tate's house to dicaprio's house uh rick's house and this is where tarantino plays that little trick he played back in inglorious bastards which is to rewrite history, right? So the Manson family never make it to Tate's house. They write, right? (laughs) And by the way, Tate, uh, as history knows well, Tate had a couple friends over and... um, It wasn't just Tate that was murdered. It was all of them. all of them. Jay, I don't know Jay's last name, but he's played by Emile Hirsch. Apparently in, in our life, he actually died trying to protect Sharon Tate and stuff but anyway none of that happens in this movie instead they walk in on brad pitt's character cliff who's high as a kite on 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 a cigarette that he once bought years ago Mm. and that's dipped in acid right he's trying to feed his dog and these people come into the house and let's just say they made a terrible mistake (laughs) right and they do not leave that house I mean, they try. So that's the biggest thing, right? And this is the this is arguably the one scene of violence in the whole film, right? There is another scene where someone gets punched, but it's not nearly what occurs. It's not on the level of what occurs in this scene and what occurs in most Tarantino films, right? Which is really brutal beatings and and chewing and. One person gets torched to death. It's just really just off the wall and brutal stuff, right? The Quentin Tarantino way. Right. But what this does is it it, it, it completely changes what we have. So it, it begs the question, first of all, what was Tarantino doing by making that choice? And it, it begs the question, why have Sharon Tate in the film at all? In the first place, not that not to suggest that she's useless in the film, but it is a very deliberate choice to have that person depicted in this film and to have to have her survive. So I must have forgotten that I was in a Tarantino film. So I really thought that we were going to have to witness this sweet character get killed with her unborn baby. Mm -hmm. And um I was really relieved that it was a Tarantino film because I was like, oh, thank God. Okay, she doesn't have to die. This is great. Oh, Brad Pitt's going to take care of it. Even Leonardo DiCaprio is going to take care of it. Yeah. This is super. So then I was like calm about it, but only in 
the last half hour. Shocked at the violence, as beautiful as it was, but calmer. And there's always something going on, um, whether it's if it's the radio going on in the background, the TV going on in the background, the blender going on, the music. The there's never really like moments of silence, which is interesting because I feel like that keeps you tense because there isn't like this reset moment. If anything, maybe your mm. reset moment is when Leonardo is on set doing the TV show. He's it's his second scene that we get to see him film. His first scene didn't go as well as he'd hoped. And in the second scene, he nails it. And the little actress, actor, as she'd like to be referred to, says, yeah. You're the, that was the best acting I've ever seen. And he gets really emotional. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. oh, my god. Because it's an affirmation for him. Yeah. So, I mean, there's but- not a lot of quiet moments. So, I really like that she was in there because i feel like it's it's kind of a fantasy right like she gets she gets to be in a film again you know and i like that she was there i like that the reality was altered because that's what i really love about inglorious bastards i mean it's a totally different reality thing getting tweaked but that's a favorite element of his films that i love and you had spoken to how this depicts the change, the shift from a lot of Westerns to a different kind of cinema, different well, kind of not exactly. genre. Not exactly. It's really more, there's definitely an era shift happening. You have the rise of the new Hollywood, mm-hmm. new, young, exciting uh, directors, Roman Polanski being one of those. You had Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, all these people came up within the next few years, starting in 1968 onward. And it was definitely the end of Hollywood's golden age, where people were tied to contracts with specific studios. And there was particular, there was very uh, particular style of filmmaking that was being made that wasn't necessarily breaking the mold, necess- you know? I mean, like, we went from, what's a, what's an early 60s, you know, like, Sound of Music to Easy Rider in a matter of a few years, you know what I'm saying? Mm. So it, this is a time that's experiencing that shift. Midnight Cowboy came out the year before this film takes place, you know? The, the industry's first and only x-rated best picture nominee you know okay so that's your interpretation of this film my interpretation well that's not my interpretation of the film that's more of the time that it's set in but go ahead i think it's interesting that sharon tate lives because what happened in reality is there was this outside unknowing completely bizarre way that she died in the first place who knew that you could get to a hollywood star back then maybe it made sense back then that mm. you could get to them. By get to them, you mean have access to have them. Have access to them, mm-hmm. you know, know where they live and get over their security gate. Not that there was much security there. The South African in me is like, no, you needed like more. But True. isn't it interesting that there's this outside force, essentially, so the Manson family, that became famous for killing Sharon Tate they don't get to be famous now because they didn't kill Sharon Tate. Right. So right. it's a really interesting, I feel like 
it's a defense of her. Like in his film, he's de- he's like protecting her. Okay. You know? So maybe it's a little basic, but I feel like that's one way to look at it. And then another way to look at it is, well, can you, it's a little out there, but can you make a, like a parallel with it? So what if Sharon Tate represents represents Hollywood, represents okay. movie making, etc. Okay. okay. And what if the outs what if Manson so Manson represents the outside force that can destroy that. All right. So what okay. if Sharon Tate in our time now is representing how movies are and right now they're kind of this particular there is another particular genre, but anyway, trying to stay focused. Um and our outside force, our Charles Manson now, is like, oh, it's streaming platforms, and it's, uh, you know, not going to the cinema. It's the dis- this sort of slight destruction of the cinema. Like, we're going to stay at home, and we're going to watch the premiere on Netflix or the premiere on Disney, Disney's new app or whatever. So, I think those sorts of interesting ideas. Can you give some examples of how the Manson family may, as as depicted in the film, may represent those things? Well, maybe this is a little crazy. I'm not saying this is like a solid thesis. But isn't it interesting that in the film, the Manson family goes, I don't know where they went in reality, but isn't it interesting that in the film, this film, they go to a old movie ranch, a movie ranch that was all about, you know, it was perfect for filming like Western. Mm-hmm. So the first scene that we have with the Manson family is these this beautiful group of women that are coming down the street mm-hmm. and they're doing very interesting things and no one is paying attention to them. So they're, they're you know, I don't know what it's called, but it's when you go to the, the uh, garbage behind a, gro- yeah, behind a grocery store and that's where you're getting your food. Mm-hmm. And they're just politely singing and walking off. Yeah, they're singing a song. I didn't catch what the song was. I forgot what it was. It is a very creepy... It's very airy. It it, it comes across very creepy how they're singing together, too. So I feel like they are maybe this... So they're representing this kind of movement that gave America a really big scare, right? Well, sure. I mean... They certainly altered how people perceived hippies. All of a sudden, hippies who were widely harmless, and they actually are one reason why you see a lot of hitchhiking occur in the film. And people thought, oh, no, they're, they're, there's no harm in picking up somebody and taking them where they need to go, at least as far as I can go. Uh, they single-handedly changed all of that, and all of a sudden, people became a lot more wary of picking up that hitchhiker um, and, and such. So how that could relate to reality, I feel like, so you have the hippie, it's this beautiful, calm thing, and then something else comes in, so the Manson family, and they kind of warp the interpretation of that. Sure. On society's interpretation of that. Okay. So it's almost like, okay, streaming comes, and it's this beautiful thing where you can watch a whole show in a day or a whole show in a week you know and now it's transforming into now they're actually premiering movies on streaming services and it's like like how does that work you know so it's kind of like this unknowing 
we don't know how that's going to affect things down the line with filmmaking. We don't know if it's going to be good in the end or bad. I don't know. I'm just grasping at straws right now. I think there's a lot to chew on here. Yeah, and I think whether or not I agree with or can exactly cling to something that grounds your your thesis, I think it is an interesting thesis, and there might be something that you're clawing at that is there. I just am not. There are probably other people out there right now that are faster at processing things Maybe. than my two-month post-concussed brain. So regardless, there we go. Regardless, I that's think that's how I feel about the Sharon Tate. That's the biggest thing for me, and I think it's very interesting for me. Um, before we, we we get into a couple of other things that you want to talk about or and wrap up, for me, what struck me about the film is this is a film about so many near successes, right? So many close calls. Okay, like you have. First of all and foremost, you have Rick Dalton, played by DiCaprio, who's a guy who achieved a certain level of success, but he could never, he could never transcend that success, right? And, and he finds himself like he almost got the, a role in The Great Escape. I mean, he was several, several um, steps removed from being able to get the, the main role in The Great Escape film. But there is this rumor out there that he was up for it, right, for a moment. A film that would have probably given him a, quite a bit of fame and other opportunities. And there's a couple other stories along those lines with him in particular. Cliff is a stunt double. He's literally a guy who's 20 feet from stardom. You know, he's, he's not the star. He's pretending to be the star, right? And he's doing all this, all this tough stuff. And... Even his uh, career is mm, kind of at a standstill, so to speak, or in trouble. Uh, and then you have also Margot Robbie, who, well, first of all, before I talk about Sharon Tate, you have both of these people, or at least DiCaprio's Rick Dalton, lives right next door to Roman Polanski, who at the time is like one of the directors of the moment. He lives right next door to success and fame. Right? How much more on the nose can you get? And in that, you also have Sharon Tate, who is, in our time, she is on the cusp of fame. She's doing these roles, working her way. She's at this point where she's sort of recognizable, but no one knows her name quite yet, you know? And she's clearly on her way. She's maybe a role or two away from that before she, in our reality, gets killed, which prevented her from achieving further success, right? The Manson family, now Charles Manson, who was famous for killing Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski's was it, was it wife or girlfriend, I can't remember. They were married. They speak about it in the movie too. Now, Manson family, Manson and his family elude fame, right? Because what what we know to transpire never transpires. So there's a handful of these things throughout the film that is definitely scratching at how, like, in Hollywood, there's definitely, like, some people who just got lucky and became successful and some people who didn't, who just... Success and fame of a certain degree just eluded them, right? 
And I think that's interesting. Now the question is, okay, well, what is Tarantino trying to say about that? Why is this the focus, you know? And I'm not sure yet what the answer is to that, but I do think that's very interesting as a recurring theme throughout the film. I think you're really hitting on something. This movie is very good at showing, as you said, like we're all so close to success. We're all doing the things that we're supposed to be doing, Mm. at least those that want success, Mm -hmm. you know? Even if you're doing everything to <laughs> take care of yourself after an auto accident, even if you're doing everything to be a successful actor, even if you're doing all the things required to, you know, insert what you're trying to do in life, it, it doesn't mean that we're going to be successful in it. It just doesn't. And it's this really odd thing, isn't it? Because you'd think that if you're doing all the tasks required, you'd think that you'd have success. But there's always this kind of other force that propels people into the success we all dream about. Mm. And so I think it's interesting that Sharon Tate and Leonardo DiCaprio are living next to each other and Roman Polanski. You know, I think it's interesting that they're living next to each other because they're kind of all doing the things that they're supposed to be doing. And like two of them are really successful out of the three of them. So it doesn't even matter where you live, apparently. <laughs> right. And then it's interesting that Leonardo DiCaprio was part of saving Sharon Tate's life. So now does that. And then he gets invited over right. to the party. And it's like, okay, well, we don't get to see this, but will Roman Polanski be grateful mm-hmm. for that? And will he put Leonardo DiCaprio in his next film? That's the suggestion, right? You know? That it opens those doors, right? Yeah. Sometimes all it is is chance and luck and a series of circumstances lining up the right way to provide opportunities. But it's also interesting because it also brings up, you've got to keep doing those things. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I, th- I think it's maybe saying is that sometimes, you know, you've just got to keep going at it and then eventually it does work out. Was there any other parts of the film that you wanted to talk out? I wanted to talk about Brad Pitt's little play it out in his head scenario because I didn't okay. know that it was a play it out in your head scenario. Yeah. I thought it was just a memory of how it did actually go down. Right. So he's there, uh, you know, he's fixing a satellite, fixing the, what? what is he fixing? Well, not literally a satellite. It's an antenna, TV oh. antenna. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So he's fixing the antenna on the roof. All of us, he's like thinking about something. And then we were in a different scene and he's waiting on the lot to. Well, pause. What is he thinking about? He's thinking about the words that Rick said to him about the opportunity of being a stuntman on the show that Rick is, is guesting on. Right. And he, Rick said, oh, well, the stunt coordinator is real tight friends with this one person. So. It's not It's not really, going to work out. Yeah. So I guess he was thinking about that and he was like, well, what if I did have an opportunity mm-hmm. to go on set and they did put me in costume what just in case? What if my friend fought for me? Yeah. That yeah. too. Mm-hmm. I've, I've forgot about that. Yeah. But then he, he carries on this fantasy. He keeps unfolding it in his head. Yeah. And it gets ridiculous to a point where I guess he thinks that he's not going to be hired because of his accusation of killing his wife. I don't know the facts. and We don't know the facts. It's not yeah. explicitly shown. Yeah. Well, he ends up fucking it up anyway, doesn't he? They show Bruce Lee 
having a moment with all these crew members. Right. Yeah. And he's like talking with them about it. Uh-huh. And then Brad Pitt like says, you're full of shit, essentially. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, well, let's have a contest. Right. And Brad Pitt is taking a few whacks from Bruce Lee. And then there's a sharp cut. It leads us to believe that Brad Pitt like pushed or something happened that allowed him to get Bruce Lee against a car hard oh, enough. Bruce Lee tried kicking it. him in the chest again. He grabbed him by the foot sw- and swung him and threw him into a car. In reality, that is not happening, sir. That actually <laughs> like, could very much happen. I just, I didn't believe it for like one second. Really? And the funny. way it cut it, it, I feel like it was meant to be a, yeah, guys, this isn't real. Okay. This, this wouldn't have really happened. He has our cut to, to help you with that. Mm, okay. And then he does get fired because yes, the the wife of the of the stunt coordinator who's like a team, yeah, played by Zoe Bell, yeah, who is an actual stunt coordinator and a stunt woman because <gasps> she's in Death Proof, Correct. right? Yeah, oh my god, she's lovely. I yeah. like her. You know, tells him to fuck off the lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then we're back on the roof again. Right. Yeah. So we learn that most of what I took out of this that was very important is. How Bruce Lee is even depicted in the film is all in Cliff's head. It's his idea of how Bruce Lee probably is. And it's it and Bruce Lee is a means to an end, right? Of something it boils down to something would inevitably happen on the lot that would lead to Cliff getting kicked off. Mm-hmm. All it would take was one thing and it, and he'd be toast. And he says, in response, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> right? And he brushes it off. He's He doesn't hold a grudge against his friend for oh, I'm not fighting for him or anything. Yeah. Uh, he realizes, okay, yeah, it, it probably wouldn't have worked out one way or another. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yes, like, I think, like, if someone doesn't read that scene right, they're like, that's a really, like, laughable depiction of who Bruce Lee is. And, and it is because it's through the perception of someone who, as far as we know, really doesn't know Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee, by the way, let's remind people, take a step back here. He was really a guy that was training stars, and he had his own school in Seattle and stuff like that, right? He wasn't like Bruce Lee, the star, you know? how we know him today. Right. Uh, And they even show in the film Bruce Lee helping Sharon Tate. Yes. And that was really sweet. I really liked that. Which I actually took to be reality Mm -hmm. like he actually trained sharon tate for this role in the wrecking crew with dean martin uh anything else you wanted to speak to before we moved on i just really enjoyed that scene because again it's a human moment we can all relate to it yeah all right so i think that'll about do it for our thoughts on once upon a time in hollywood have you seen the film let us know what you thought at the gibson review at gmail.com all right now it's time for film faves where we count down our favorite films around a particular topic. A little bit about Film Phase. First of all, it is inspired by a segment I used to do on the blog where I counted down my favorite films year by year. And the idea is not only to give you an idea of our taste, but also hopefully expose you to certain films that maybe you hadn't heard of before. And in in so doing, we try to point out when films are available on certain subscription services, namely Hulu, Netflix, Amazon Prime, and HBO Now. Uh, most A lot of the times that's not the case. They're, they are available, however, to rent on Amazon about 80% of the time when they're not on the sub- subscription platforms. So 
for this episode, we're going back to our year-long look at the decade that is coming to an end. And we've done love stories, documentaries, foreign films, action films, and, and sci-fi and fantasy films. Now we're looking at comic book movies. Now you might be wondering, well, you know, pretty soon The Kitchen comes out in theaters, and that's a comic book movie. Why pair this list up with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and not The Kitchen? That would have been perfect. It would have been perfect, is my answer to that. But the, really, timing is why when that episode comes out, it's going to be too late. And, you know, uh, it's good to get these going out near the first half of a month. In addition to The Kitchen, the only other comic book movies coming out the rest of the year are Adam's Family, which I bet you didn't even realize was actually originally a comic strip. And then Joker, which is a big question mark. Uh, what Who the hell? Who's playing the Joker again? Joaquin Phoenix. Time? I just, I don't know. Although I saw the trailer and I was like, well, that's interesting. I saw the trailer. I thought that's interesting, but I'm also, I don't know. Well, it's a big role to fill. We'll see. Him. We'll see what happens. And that's the same for the Best of the 2010s article, which isn't out yet, but should probably be released shortly after, within a few days of this podcast being released. So definitely check out that article when it does come to pass. You'll see links on social media for that. But uh, comic book movies, this is kind of our wheelhouse, right? Mm -hmm. Now, most people think when they think of comic book movies, they think of superhero films. And, and that that's the only thing that exists. Right, yeah. and that's fair it in is. a decade when you had 20 Marvel films come out, Marvel Cinematic Universe films So I was going to say, right? we went from a genre of westerns in Once Upon a Time in Mexico to what we have now is a genre of superheroes. Sure, absolutely. And I would say even the the, uh, the realm of comic book movies was probably a little more diverse last decade than this decade, where there was more films re being represented that wasn't just superhero films. You know, you had Sin City and um, a whole bunch of others. Did we have 300, V for Vendetta? V for Vendetta. So a lot of which some people stuff kind of, being made. Yeah. Yeah. Alan Moore stuff. Watchmen. You know, those are kind of considered superhero films, but still, you know, you have a, a lot of other things. I'm going to go off for a little bit, but first, before I do, Shannon, why don't you talk about for you what the experience was making this list? So making this list, I thought was going to be really easy. And you're like phoning me saying, this is so hard. And I'm like, bitch, please. And then I started putting it together and I was like, oh, shit. So it's difficult to keep it varied. Uh, it looks like I only have about three films that are technically not superhero films. Mm -hmm. Maybe four. Okay. And it looks like it's in the last few years. Okay. So I think that's interesting. Decade. Yeah. And honestly, it's, it's what I like. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to be too harsh on myself with this list. Superhero films. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's what I really enjoy. I, I love seeing the superpowers. I love believing that we can be mutants in a superhero way. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, for me, there were a few X-Men movies this decade. And for me, that's like, I like that more than Star Wars. That's my right. franchise. Mm -hmm. So a lot of sentimental sentimentality here. Yeah, there was a lot of X-Men films and X-Men spinoff films, too, uh, which is important to note. So 
I'll explain a little bit on my end when we get to my start of my list. Why don't you start? Uh, first of all, I guess, we're, did you notice any particular years that shone bright in this, this realm of comic book movies in particular? It looks like 2017 was pretty popular for me. I've got about three films from 2017 in this list. What about you? Very cool. Oh, well, as far as that goes, I actually noted oh, uh, more than one year. 2010, 2013, 2014, and 2017 are pretty heavy on my list. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are all very strong years for comic book movies. There are other picks outside oh. my list. That also fall under 2013, 2014, and 2017. Uh, this is going to be interesting because I haven't seen your list, and I just realized I have three from 2014 mm. and three from 2017. Interesting. So, well, why don't you share with us what your number 12 is? So my number 12, yay, is not a superhero film. Mm. It is actually a French animation film called April and the Extraordinary World. It uh, was from 2016 and is available on Netflix. This is just... Here's why you should watch it, because it's strange as fuck and weird and delightful at the same time, but also it's got an alternate reality to it, mm. but that can also be applied to right now. I'll tell you why. It's happening in 1941 in France. People are trapped in the 19th century, so there's heavy influence from Napoleon and heavy influence from steam. Uh, what is that called? Like, like steampunk? Ste- I want to say steampunk, but okay. uh, that's how their world's working is from steam. Okay. So steam engines in indus- industry, it. etc. And scientists are vanishing. We don't know where they're going, but if you're a scientist, you're essentially being kidnapped. And it's interesting because it's kind of, it looks like at first that like scientists, uh, you're kind of like, no, don't take the science career. And... They're not being regarded very well from what we see in the beginning. And in reality, like, are we really listening to our scientists today that are talking to us about climate change? You know, are we listening to what they're saying about water, uh, how our water is being affected and how that's not a good thing? So, yeah, I really like this film. I like where it's coming from. Very cool. So before I dive into my list, let me just share with you a few notes I made to really kind of sell the struggle I had with this list. In this decade alone, we had 20 Marvel Cinematic Universe films, 11 non-superhero films, six animated films based on comic books, eight X-Men related films. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. Seven DC Extended Universe movies. And I, I started the list with like 15 films and I had a real hard time figuring out how to pare that down to 12 movies. And, and, and part of me wants to try to represent everything. Part of me is like, okay, I put a challenge in front of me. Like, how, how few MCU films can I have on this list? You know, I, I really didn't want it to be like every other movie was an MCU film. Can I have a DC film represented? Can I have non-superhero? How many non-superhero films can I have represented on this list? Is there room for one of the animated films on my list? You know, and, uh, you know, should I have an X-Men film? Like, I struggled so much with this. (laughs) And, And part of it was also, okay, a huge deciding factor of what's going to make my list. 
is something that I kind of forgot with the past list, which is absolute joy and how how much of a, a, an experience going to see the film was for me, right? I forgot that with the previous list in the sense that if I, if I held to that, really Star Wars The Force Awakens would have ended up as my favorite sci-fi and fantasy film of the decade rather than second to Harry Potter and Deathly Hollow. So I really was trying to apply that here, and I still ended up having to make some concessions. Knowing that a couple films were going to be represented on your list, I had to make some really tough cuts. Mm-hmm. So here's what I started with on my list my 12th favorite comic book movie of the decade is snowpiercer by bonju ho nice choice from 2013 it is available on netflix it stars chris evans tilda swinton john hurt in one of his last roles and olivia uh, octavia spencer and a few others basically uh, oh, I wish I, I got up who created the comic. I forgot to research that. Ugh, kicking myself for that. But um, it, it's uh, based on, I think, maybe a French comic. I'm not sure. About a train in the distant future, in this kind of dystopian future, where everybody who has survived this huge environmental cataclysm um, is now in a train that is nonstop moving around. Right. And that train is kind of divided up by class and the lower class are, of course, in the back of the train and they're not living in the best conditions. They're being kind of oppressed, you know, they're living in really squalid conditions. Yes. They the only food they get are these these bars of jelly of gelatin of some kind. And who knows what it's made of. And Chris Evans basically is the guy who's going to make a plan to to change things, right? Tilda Swinton has a bonkers, awesome performance as basically the face of the the leadership, and she has a really great monologue about a shoe, and <laughs> and, and versus a hat. And you know, the funny thing is, I rewatched some of this movie recently, and Chris Evans, man, he is. He is forever Captain America. And even watching this movie where he's like, I've done bad things. I still can't help but see Captain America, you know, but he's still great. I love him. I love him. This movie is at times really brutal. It's actually one of the few Octavia Spencer performances and roles that I appreciate. I love it when she's not playing some wise old black woman or whatever, you know, like in The Help and other other things. I, I, I really like her in this film. I wish she did more roles like this or was asked to do more roles like this. And it's one of Bon Joon-ho's only crossover to English language. So it's a great film. It's my 12th favorite. It's from 2013, Snowpiercer. I'll take Octavia Spencer however I can get her. Uh-huh. Okay. My number 11 is not a superhero film. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> that's two in a row. That's that's two out of three we're getting, people. Diary of a Teenage Girl. Oh, it didn't make your list. It did. The stars Belle Polly, Kristen Wiig, and Alexander Skosgård. There's a couple other names in there that you can go check out. So what is this film about? This film is about Belle is a teenage artist, and she's living in San Francisco at this time, which is, you know, pretty cool. It's the 1970s. You know, we're getting close to, aren't we getting close to female liberation? 
etc. That's definitely something that occurs in the, er- the first half of that decade. Okay. So it's very interesting. Oh, sorry. And then she tries to have an affair with her mother's boyfriend, Alexander Skarsgård. I am all about seeing the depiction of the mind of teenage girls. I love when we see it in filmmaking because I feel like it's an opportunity not only for those women who are expressing their stories, but I feel like it's every woman around the world. Some part of them is being expressed, no matter how crazy the film can be. I am all about throw me the crazy shit that teenage girls do. Throw me the crazy shit that they feel and how they interpret the world. Because you know what? If you relate to being a girl, you're going to be able to relate to that film in some way. And I think it needs more depiction. The crazy needs depiction because it is a crazy time in a woman's life. Very cool. And that film's directed by Marielle Heller, who is, uh, is, is an awesome director. My number 11 is... I think from 2010 it is one of two incendiary superhero films that came out this decade i chose one of the two not both of them this is kick-ass from 2010 on amazon prime and hulu this film is one of several films i noticed follow a trend where you'll the most of the film will be really awesome until either the last moment of the film, the last like minute or two, or the complete third act isn't as strong as the rest of the film. I can count on at least four or five different films, comic book movies, where that's the case. And it's interesting. This film does stumble in a similar regard where what happens in the final couple minutes just doesn't quite hold up. But this has one of the best performances of Nick Cage, especially latter-day Nick Cage, he's just absolutely bonkers as Big Daddy. Chloe Moretz just exploded on screen as Hit Girl. Very promising performance. That you could argue whether or not she's paid off on on that promise. Ironically, I found this interesting. What's his name? Is it Andrew Taylor Joy? Anyway, he plays the title character Kick Ass, and he is anything but. I thought I found this film a a great skewering and kind of uh, humorous look at real life superheroes. What we love about superheroes would look like in real life. And uh, Mark Strong, one of his uh, first, I think, of many comic book movie appearances is as the big bad in this film, too. So Kick-Ass is my number 11 on Prime and Hulu from 2010. My number 10 is the start of the superheroes, but maybe it's a little different depending on your interpretation. Hmm. Big Hero 6 from 2014. Absolutely. (laughs) I considered that one. Oh, okay. The film follows its main character, Hero, and Baymax. Hero loses his brother in the first 20 minutes of the film to a tragic event, and we get to see what it's like in an animated film, what the process of grief looks like. Mm. Uh, Baymax assesses Hero and realize, like, shows that there's depression, which is really great. Mm-hmm. It be, you know, becomes a talking point, and I think that that's awesome. So he moves through the process of grief, and he's propelled into completing his brother's project and getting to go to, I guess it's university, with his brother's friends. 
in their uh, STEAM department, Mm -hmm. as in, you know, science, technology, engineering, art, Mm -hmm. mathematics. And they become his, they become a great superhero team. Big Hero 6. All through, all through STEAM. (laughs) So it's pretty cool. It is very cool. It's very fun. And it's also the first of what we would see with the merger of Disney and Marvel, too. That was Mm. the first thing that came of that very obscure comic, uh, too. So as an excellent pick, my number 10 may not be considered such a great pick by many people, but I don't care. I love this movie. I've oh, I can't not enjoy it despite people's hate. It is Man of Steel from 2013. One of the it has a beautiful score. Yes, I was going to get to that. Yes, I'm sorry. first of all, it, it is one of the few DC films of this decade that is actually worth seeing. Most of them are not. I think you could say maybe three of them are. This is one of them. I know there's. I know the end is contentious, but there's so much about this film that I can't help but enjoy. I the score is a big part of it by Hans Zimmer. I love his score to Man of Steel. He had quite a mountain to climb to come up with something completely different and but just as memorable as John Williams theme to superman now maybe it's not as iconic hasn't achieved that level of iconography as john williams score to superman but it is really really good and i get pumped and jazzed hearing that in this film i think overall you know it does superman action better than any superman ever ever superman film ever did it depicts uh, his powers and and uh, very well in this film lois lane i think we get one of the best lois lanes ever that's actually closest to the actual comic version of lois lane through amy adams there's a number of other things that i really really love and enjoy about this film so yes i am a defender and lover of man of steel from 2013 it is my 10th favorite comic book movie of the decade my number nine is Edge of Tomorrow from 2014. Oh, is it? Is Interesting. It on your list? Maybe. <laughs> I'm like trying to peep over at Jeff's list. <laughs> anyway, this has got Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. What a duo. Yeah. I never thought that they would be so killer. They're awesome. Yes. Tom Cruise is a soldier, although I don't think he was usually in the field, if I remember correctly. And then all of a sudden he finds himself in the field and he uh, they are fighting aliens. They're trying to get back control of Earth from these aliens who just keep killing humans because why not? And he inherits a very special ability where he relives the same day over and over again so it's kind of like the what do they call that groundhog day yeah groundhog day. it's a groundhog day for um in a sci-fi yeah sci-fi alien invasion film yeah yeah, yeah that's what i'm thank you so much yeah <laughs> was there anything that you loved about it oh you know me i love time so the fact that he's reliving the same uh, day is hilarious like if emily blunt feels like He's not living the best day that he's supposed to be living, like learning as much as he can yeah. so that they can conquer this alien issue. Then she kills him. 
Right. Because <laughs> yeah. she knows he's going to come back. Right. And I just think that that's freaking hilarious. It is. Yeah, so that's an excellent pick. You might hear a little bit about that in the future. But for right now, my number nine favorite comic book movie of the decade starts. We go back to 2010. Is it for the last time? I think for the last time. This is a film that got trampled on in the box office, unfortunately, in August of 2010. Beaten, unfortunately, by The Expendables, which is a far less interesting oh, film. What? It is Scott Pilgrim versus the World on Netflix. This is, of course, based on Brian o- Leo O'Malley. Brian O'Malley? Brian O'Malley's uh, series of graphic novels, not comic books, but he had actual like eight graphic novels, I think, following Scott Pilgrim. This is directed by Edgar Wright, who had followed up Hot Fuzz with this film. I think this is one of Edgar Wright's best films. It is a brilliant metaphor of of growing up, being becoming a man child, from going from a man child to actually <laughs> taking responsibility for how you affect other people, how you make other people feel, and even how how you affect yourself and your your self image. It's a great metaphor for dealing with other people's baggage when you get involved with them you know that they may have some emotional and other baggage that they carry from past relationships as this guy learns he has to fight the seven evil exes of (laughs) ramona flowers the girl he wants to be with it's a brilliant film brilliant visuals great video game and and uh, comic book visuals love the film i could go on for a very long time about it, but I won't. Maybe I'll link to my original review in the show notes. I considered that one for my list, but superheroes took over. Oh, very cool. And I knew you would have it, so uh, I let it go. Awesome. My next film is Captain Marvel from 2019. Woo! Oh, the Captain first Marvel. female. What? Yeah, Captain Marvel. The first female Marvel lead. Lead. Yeah. Film thing. Like, I, I don't yeah. know. I just blanked on what words I wanted. This stars Brie Larson as Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, and she is seen as one of the most powerful heroines in the galaxy, uh, as we find out later. And I just think that it's an awesome film. We get to, I don't want to say too much about it because it's kind of a twisted plot, you mm-hmm. know? Yep. So I guess the best thing I can say is it's happening in the 90s, yep. right? Uh, 1995? Yeah, you get she lands in a blockbuster video. So, you know, for all the movie fans mm-hmm. out there, it's really fun. So there's a lot happening, and I think everyone should watch it. It's also got Samuel L. Jackson. Of course. Um, back in the day mm-hmm. uh, when he's starting out, I guess. As, he, as he's an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, really fun. Go watch it. Very cool. Very cool. My next film, my eighth favorite film, uh, comic book movie of the decade, is available on Netflix, 2012's The Avengers. Now, this goes to the point of what was the experience like watching these films? And this is definitely one of the films, perhaps the first one on my list, that truly gave me great joy hey this was our first film in the cinema 
It was together. the first film that we saw together in the cinema. But, you know, there's several moments that just offer so much glee as a comic book fan who never thought he would see a crossover film of a handful of superheroes. You have the huge long tracking shot in the climactic battle where it goes from one hero to another and certain heroes are using their powers together to defeat these horde of aliens and and stuff or even the the swing around tracking shot of the avengers assembled for the first time you have great moments like hulk smash and and puny god and (laughs) the moment actually that that actually is the the little punctuation mark of that long tracking shot where hulk and thor are fighting together and that tracking shot comes to an end and you have just a a a beat and then hulk punches thor and (laughs) sends him flying right just in case you're wondering who's tougher it's me (laughs) sweet just just wonderful great moments that is just a comic book lover dream come to life and that's what the avengers was uh, up to that point and so it may seem quaint only seven years later <laughs> by what because of what we've seen since but it, it is a joy now so it is my number eight favorite comic book movie i think it's really fun that you mentioned thor and hulk and the loki moment because my next film is Thor Ragnarok. Aha! <laughs> One of the films I considered for my list and had to sacrifice. Oh, well, it's okay. I got it for you. Yay! So it's on Netflix. It's from 2017. And speaking of Thor and Hulk, they come together in this film. Thor is racing against time to prevent... Ragnarok. Ragnarok. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is directed by Taiko Watiti, and that's the best part. That's what really amplifies the humor in this film and there are funny moments where there's just really odd new zealand humor Mm. and i like i totally relate to it being a south african and i think it's really fun there were moments in this film where i was laughing so obnoxiously loud and none of the americans around me were laughing (laughs) (laughs) my mother who was with us when we watched this film south african she giggled a little bit but, you know, I, mm. I had a really good time with this film. I think that the relationship between Thor and Hulk, the chemistry between Chris Hemsworth and Mark Ruffalo is amazing. And the best moment, well, there's a couple best moments in this film, but mm. one of the best moments is when Loki realizes that who Jeff Goldblum is talking about, his prized warrior, oh. is actually the pers- the one thing he's afraid of and it's hulk right right yeah also a really great opening set to uh immigrant song with by led zeppelin on that film and also jeff goldblum's great in that kate blanchett is great in it too yeah she is such an awesome movie i'm glad you represented it here my next comic book movie is not a marvel film like my last pick was the very first one on my list but rather Logan from 2017. That made my that ended up number seven on my list. It is the best spin X-Men spin-off film. It's a film that, like The Dark Knight almost ten years before it, in a way transcends the superhero genre. We see 
Wolverine, in his old age, this is, of course, loosely adapted adaptation of Old Man Logan comic series. Uh, but we see him in his old age. He is taking care of Professor X, who's like in his 90s or something. Definitely not well. And way after some cataclysmic events that occurred in the past, off screen. We don't even really know what it is. Wiped out the X-Men completely. And Logan finds himself in a situation where he's kind of on the run and trying to take care of this girl who is, let's say, not very well behaved. (laughs) Played by Daphne. Sure. You know, you don't want to get on her bad side. You can't argue with that. This is brutally violent. This is everything that Wolverine fans really wanted to see of a Wolverine film. It delivered in so many ways. It even delivered in thematic and in story sense is one of the best without question. So that is Logan from 2017. Shanna, we're at the halfway mark. What is your number six? My number six is available on Netflix from 2018. It is Black Panther. Oh, very cool. When you had mentioned that film, I was like, where is that on my list? Oh, my God, it's not on my list. And I threw something else out to slap that one in there. I can't believe it just came out last year. This is, a, this is an amazing film. There's <laughs> so much that's film. happened since then, too. Yeah. So this stars Chadwick Boseman, Michael B. Jordan, the Peter Nyong'o, Danai Guerra, one of two white guys, Martin Freeman. <laughs> yeah, really. Daniel Kaluuya, Letitia mm-hmm. Wright, just Winston Duke, Forrest Whitaker, just amazing, amazing talents. Mm-hmm. And then our second white guy is Andy Serkis. So, I guess that's true. such a fantastic cast. It's, uh, anyway, we're going to get to the point here. So, we got introduced to Black Panther in Avengers Civil War. Captain America Civil War, yes. Uh, oh, Okay. But yeah, yeah. We Otherwise known as Civil War. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Fair enough. Super. Okay. Go ahead. Mm. So we got introduced to him there. His, you know, something tragic had happened to him in that film. And now in this film, his film, uh, we get to see him going to his hidden country, Wakanda, in the African continent. Mm-hmm. And we, we get to see what he needs to do now after the passing of someone close to him. We get to see him defend his kingdom. Uh, We get to see all the glory of Wakanda. Mm -hmm. And it's just amazing. This movie won an Oscar for costume design. Rightly so. All the different, you know, representations of African tribes were included and weaved through uh, in this film. And if you want to hear more, because I could carry on, but it's probably good that I don't, uh, go and listen to our previous podcast on this. Review yeah, on this. I will try to link to that episode as well. Uh, that was whew, a year and a half. Well, yeah, a year March. and a half ago Yeah, of, of last year. I think it was even February. But a great film. Definitely one of the best. Ryan Coogler is the man. My number six. We're going back to the MCU for Avengers Infinity War from 2018. Available on Netflix. Again, what was the the experience in the theater? And Mm -hmm. for me, I had a lot of expectations with Infinity War. Stakes had to be raised casualties needed to occur 
I didn't, I don't know if I expected things to go exactly how they did in the end with the snap, the now famous snap. But outside of that, I mean, we've argued numerous times in this podcast about certain deaths that occur in that film. But I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, the adage as a writer of if you want to really raise the stakes, if you really want your, your readers or your viewers to care about the story, kill your darlings. And this film does that. And, I, and it's great. I love it. It gives meaningful deaths for certain characters. But also, it's a villain's story. It introduces us to Thanos, like, mm. for realsies. Like, I guess that's a good point, yeah. He, yeah, he's had cameos in mostly... <laughs> it's Thanos' turn. Yeah, and it is. is his story, and he becomes one of the greatest villains in all of cinema. Right? Mm-hmm. He has mm-hmm. to be, right? And, he, and Josh Brolin did a magnificent job with him. The visual effects motion capture artist did an incredible job including all the nuances on his face that add a certain degree of humanity and believability and reality to the character. Avengers Infinity War is fantastic and it is my sixth favorite comic book movie of the decade. My number five, funny enough, is Avengers Endgame. Oh, really? <laughs> so I think it's funny that you had Infinity and now I have Endgame. <gasps> so that is obviously from this year, 2019. And really, it's like... <sighs> So it's after Infinity War. Yes. We're going to see how the, you know, how are people dealing, how are heroes dealing with post-snap. Mm-hmm. And that's where I leave it as far as the plot goes. And the reason I this is on my list is because of the amazing epicness of this film. Mm. And, you know, the filmmakers set out to create a, a certain story that would occur over several films how many 20 uh, is it 20? 20 i wouldn't say filmmakers i would say like kevin feige okay the, kevin feige yeah. you know he takes on this massive project yeah 22 total massive talent mm-hmm. massive resources and he did it mm-hmm. and he did it really well yep. and good for him and absolutely every single person involved in this franchise involved in this film Right on, sister. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) My number five favorite comic book movie is 2016's Captain America Civil War. Now... Oh, this is a favorite of yours, yeah. Yes. Again, the experience. Uh, One thing I forgot to mention about Infinity War is there is a moment where Captain America is revealed... And it has Captain America's theme, and he comes out in silhouette, and it just is like, yes! It gives me chills. Well, there's <laughs> entire sequences like that in Civil War, as, as most especially the second act giant battle, like poster battle, where the Avengers have been divided. There's a line, there's a rift between them of whether or not they should agree to this registration act called the the Sokovia Accords that would get that would make them bow to a oversight committee, right? No matter what they did, and it leads to them having to fight each other, you know. And it is such an amazing, amazing sequence that debuts Spider Man into the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe and the geek in all of us, right? And an immensely 
incredible moment from Ant-Man as well in this sequence. And then on top of it all, they make this really awesome character-driven battle. They make it personal with this fight between Captain America and Iron Man and the climax and a villain who orchestrates all of this. Like, his idea is to have the Avengers destroyed from within. And he basically gets away with it. Baron Zemo, uh, played by the guy from Inglorious Bastards. I know. <laughs> oh, I know his name, but his name escapes yeah. me. I apologize. Anyway, he, he's fantastic. It's a great film. I love it. Captain America Civil War, number five on my list. So my number four. We're already at number four. We are. Is Guardians of the Galaxy from 2014. Another this, film I had to sacrifice oh, on my you did? list. No, I could not sacrifice this yeah. film. I love this film way too much. I love... I, I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And it was a... I think it was a birthday movie? It came out in like... Oh, no. I want to say August. No. The sequel it came was out a in birthday August. movie. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. I was... I was not... Was not a fan of... Chris Pratt, but I'm a huge fan of Zoe Saldana. No matter what she does, I will watch anything she's in. But now I am a fan. Now I am a fan. Oh my God. (laughs) And so when I went and watched this, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And then I was like, oh, he's a goofball. I love this. And then years later, we watched Parks and Rec. So it's like, see, there was, there was, Uh groundwork was missing. Yeah. 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 This is a film, you know, that's happening, obviously, in the galaxy. There's this group of intergalactic criminals, Mm -hmm. seemingly, and, you know, they need to work together to face their enemy, to face this issue that's happening, and they end up saving the universe. So they're really pretty cool. And the soundtrack is my favorite. Oh, yeah. They're goofing off is my favorite. I mean, <laughs> Rocket is so funny. He's like, I'm going to get that eye. You know, he's like, he loves his little missions and he's just so weird. And then we have the ever-loving Groot, you know, who just says, I am Groot. And, and it's all about communicating through the eyes and the body language mm. that'll say what he's actually saying. Mm. And, and then we have Drax, who's just fucking insane man he's just this he's like the high school football jock guy like intensified you know i feel and then my favorite we have gamora and i just love her i love what she's fighting for i love the silent fight that she's fighting it's just i think she's amazing and you know star lord isn't so bad awesome yeah great cast i love it i was very sad to have to take it off my list so I'm glad you included it. My fourth favorite comic book movie of the decade is my favorite X-Men film of the decade. It is X-Men Days of Future Past from 2014. The movie that blew me away It is not better than Logan. Logan is definitely the best X-Men related film oh, of the decade. Mm. Yes, yes. But it does so many things right. Now, unfortunately, it is the film that definitively makes x-men first class not a reboot but an actual prequel to the original and i won't get into my continuity <laughs> nerdiness that makes that a problem you for push me up your glasses i won't do it mm-hmm. i won't do it but there's so many great things in it sentinels 
you you have a cold open that kills X-Men in the future. It's very dark. You get to see X-Men combining powers, using powers as a team together. You get to uh, Ellen Page is back as Shadowcat doing really awesome Shadowcat stuff. Uh, you get a 70s kind of throwback setting where you get Pierre Dinklage playing Dr. Bolivar Trask. He's fantastic. It's a great film. It's a great film. X-Men, Days of Future Past, not perfect film, but um, solid and one of the best X-Men films ever made. My number three, because why wouldn't it be, is Wonder Woman from 2017. Directed by Patty Jenkins, who is like a goddess to me now. (laughs) Like she needs to direct more. Like I don't know what her life situation is, but if you could take on more work, please do. (laughs) As soon as possible. I need more films by you. Starring Gal Gadot as Diana. Starring Chris Pine Pine as Steve Trevor. And I think it's fun because it's like he's in other sci-fi stuff. Yeah, Star Trek. Yeah. Anyway, it's also got Robin Wright as Diana's aunt, and it's got Connie Nielsen as Hippolyta. So, we all know about Wonder Woman. We've all been waiting years and years and fucking years for a film starring her. And she is living in her world, Themyscira, and all of a sudden a pilot crashes, and she now really does have to leave and go to you know our world as we know it mm-hmm, and it's during it's during world war one right yeah i think so yeah, yeah. it's during world war one and she needs to help right and uh she is a kick-ass warrior and i don't really know what else to say other than i love this film mm. i i love seeing her i i love how it ends i love how you know she discovers an extra power and it, it's just uh this film should have been made a very long time ago but it got made when it did and i'm grateful that it's here very cool. My third favorite film is actually a little bit of a cheat, you could say. I didn't realize this. I thought it was based on a manga. It's actually based on what's called a Japanese light novel called All You Need Is Kill, which technically isn't a manga. It's manga-like. So if you consider this not oh, not one, then definitely consider it one of my three favorite sci-fi and fantasy films of the decade. It would have made that list had I known this. But let's just say it is a comic book movie. For the sake <laughs> For of argument. sake. It is Edge of Tomorrow, Woo-hoo! which made Shanna's list. Shanna did a pretty decent job describing it. And the theme is about this movie. It is one of the films that unfortunately gets everything right except uh, the last moments. I remember this specifically watching it in the theater and my just with bated breath, I was watching the end of the film thinking, oh my God, this thing is so close to perfect. Are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? And then the last two minutes happen and I'm like, damn, damn, this thing was so close to sticking the landing and being perfect. I won't give away the ending, but let's say... It definitely felt like like a certain degree of star influencing story and, and not in a good way. But this is a really amazing film. It's hilarious. It kicks ass. Emily Blunt kicks ass. Oh, my God. Come on. Actually, she actually, you know, Tom Cruise is usually the action hero. She's the action hero in this film. Love it. And... 
it has some pretty weighty stuff in it too so i love edge of tomorrow it is my third favorite comic book movie of the decade and definitely one of my favorite sci-fi films of the decade too my second favorite is logan Oh, really? Why? That's how high it goes. Okay, talk about that. It's higher than Wonder Woman. Yeah, that's shocking, actually. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, here's why. I so think you I know already... what your number one is now, but go ahead. Okay. <laughs> that took you forever, by the way, to figure that out. Mm. Anyway, you've already spoken about, done a really good job explaining Logan. I see it as a fun way to see a hero. You never really see heroes aging. We mm. all know that Batman ages. We all know that... Well, I don't know about Superman. We all know that our heroes are going to age because ultimately a lot of them are human in yeah. some fashion or at least, at least partially. Sure. And so Logan serves this purpose of fulfilling what our hero is going to look like in a different time, uh, their time. And I just, I really loved how unexpectedly awesome and gross this film was yeah. <laughs> both at the same time. I, I love that we we got to see Patrick Stewart again. I, I love that we got to see Caliban because that was the first time we saw him, right? I think so. Yeah, because in, in Apocalypse, way. it was either Apocalypse had him before, but this is definitely a better version. A better version. It was yeah. really wonderful. And I, I love the journey that they're going on. He's protecting a mutant child, Laura, and... And then some. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I really liked it. It was also interesting to see, well, what is going to happen? I mean, based on Days of Future Past, they fixed that sen Sentinels are not going to, to get them. So yeah. what's going to happen then? Right. Well, apparently Wolverine's going to have time to age and mm -hmm. we'll, you know, see what else. There's there's some spoiler discussion to have with this film. I mm -hmm. will I will say that I kind of wish Fox had the opportunity to continue on from where the story ends yes, with certain characters. It would have been lovely. Yeah, it would have been cool. But uh, awesome. That I didn't see expect that to be your second favorite. My second favorite is your third favorite, I believe. It is Wonder Woman from 2017, one of the most iconic comic book movies of the decade this thing was this thing was huge for women at the time and even even as such for me i was moved to tears and cheered mm. during this film the no man's land is probably one of the most famous uh, scenes not just in comic book movies of the decade but of, of any film of the decade it is such a extraordinary moment of female empowerment and and kind of this this victory for lack of a better term you know like it i just guess like overcoming. victory in several ways yeah it is so damn cool unfortunately this is also one of those movies where the third act doesn't quite measure up to the rest of the movie so it does misstep a little bit there but i mean we can forgive it that because it's such an awesome experience. I don't know what you're talking about. So, well, go back to our <laughs> review. No, of I know Woman. what you're referring to. I'm just like, I think it was great. <laughs> uh, a very important film, one of the most important comic book movies of the decade, like Black Panther was, too. Yeah. I would say as well. And so, it is my second favorite comic book movie of the decade. Shannon, what is your favorite? Comic book movie of the decade. I think I know. <laughs> I think I know, but... Do you want to try and guess? 
Have you seen my list? No, I haven't seen your list at all. Do you want to try this? Process of elimination, it has to be X-Men Days of Future Past. And that is exactly it. My number one is X-Men Days of Future Past from 2014. And you've done a fairly good job explaining but here's what i really love about this film this is epicness Mm -hmm. before marvel had their epicness of infinity and endgame x-men days of future past had all the characters from the previous films Mm -hmm. so not the first class stuff but you know x-men one two three like they had all those characters so from an entirely different like boot and then they had the characters from the reboot Mm -hmm. come together in a film and it was a fucking amazing and i think i cried and then i cried some more and (laughs) it was just you know as an x-men fan it's like this is what you you hope is going to happen right and it didn't disappoint me right much like infinity and endgame X-Men Days of Future Past didn't disappoint me. I love that we got to see all the characters. I love the uncut version as well. That we oh, the rogue cut, yeah. The rogue cut. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take anything you give me. Right. Yeah. Um, it's an important film because I feel like X-Men's job is always to remind us of our humanity and to remind us of practicing compassion because if you don't practice compassion, you're not going to get very far as in the human evolution. Yeah. And also a really great adaptation of one of the best X-Men stories ever too. Um, now the time has come for my favorite comic book movie of the decade. When I was taken into consideration again, the actual experience and what the film meant to me, mm-hmm. all these other films, up? no, no, all okay. these other films that I mentioned were extraordinary experiences as someone who grew up a a comic book reader and and fan of superheroes. But none could compare to this year's Avengers Endgame. That makes sense for you. Good choice. A film where you you literally have a sequence where it must be three dozen characters show up on essentially a splash page come to life on screen. It is some extraordinary stuff that absolutely moved me to tears. And I know some people weren't a fan of this, but I totally loved the moment when you had this testament of not only all these characters that that Marvel Studios has brought to life over a period of 10, 11 years, but yet all these great female characters that have been brought to life over that time, all coming together and working together as well. Plus, you still had Marvel did not pull any punches. Thankfully, there were still great sacrifices made and a end to many characters' stories and just absolutely came together perfectly. Avengers Endgame was hands down the most extraordinary comic book movie experience of the decade for me as a fan. So, yes, it trumps Wonder Woman. It trumps X-Men Days of Future Past, Civil War. Like, Marvel just kept one-upping their game and and just basically blew everybody else out of the water at, at this game of superhero films. So it is my favorite comic book film of the decade. But 
What is your favorite comic book movie of the decade? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. I will quickly note there was, I, I mentioned Thor Ragnarok and Guardians of the Galaxy were movies I had to boot off my list for uh, as a sacrifice. Um, Blue is the Warmest Color is the only like uh, comic book movie drama uh, of the decade that um, is a very fine love story. Just did not make my list. Was there any other like uh, any other regrets for you? Was this as hard for you as for me? Yeah, it was. I mean, you did a really good job in trying to vary your list, um, trying to make it like half superheroes and half not. That just wasn't possible for me. Uh, I mean, like, I like Kinsman. I think it's so bizarre. Yeah. And beautiful how it ends. Yeah. You know, it's a really lovely I mean, concept and beautiful beautiful <laughs> beautiful in its 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 grossness sure you yeah. know so that was so one. i think that was one regret that i had yeah. and then scott pilgrim oh i yeah. really like scott pilgrim nice too. very cool i couldn't fit an animated film on my list i'm glad you did but for me spider-man and the spider-verse would have been that movie mm-hmm. but i figured well it's been represented i guess we've talked about it to death i guess i won't beat it i beat a dead horse <laughs> so anyway uh before we talk about our next episode shanna why don't you share with people where they can find you on the internet so you can find me at shanna underscore paxton s-h-a-n-n-a p-a-x-t-o-n on instagram very cool uh go to the gibsonreview.com to find past reviews of some of the movies on this list as well as past episodes of the movie lovers where we review other films on this list uh, and you can also find the best of the 2010 series at that website as well. You can go to facebook.com slash the Gibson review or Instagram, the Gibson 99 to follow us on social media. Uh, there's, there tends to be movie centric content on there as well. You can also go, Oh, find this podcast by the way on iTunes. Uh, I think maybe it's now Apple podcasts or something like that. Uh, definitely Spotify, Stitcher, and soundcloud and so you can subscribe maybe leave a review if you would be so kind you can send donated donation money to the gibson review at gmail.com via paypal we definitely appreciate a dollar or two to help expenses with the movie viewing the podcast and the website and also check um flick chart the gibson 99 you'll find me on there next time on the movie lovers as referenced at the beginning of this podcast we are going to be reviewing the kitchen starring melissa mccarthy tiffany haddish and i think it's a triple f rated movie anyway and also we'll be going back to our year by year countdown uh, on film faves now we're going to evolve a little bit here We're going to include two years in film phase in the next episode. We're going to focus on 1982 and 83 for reasons we'll explain in that episode. But look forward to that on August 20th. Until then, keep track of the best of the 2010 articles on thegibsonreview.com. Keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye-bye.